King Culture presents a plan for longevity, a health and wellness initiative for men. Why health? Why now? At King Culture, we are equipping men to become selfless leaders. And part of selfless leadership is developing a strategy that ensures not only your well-being, but the well-being of those you're responsible for. I'm Dominic Perviance, and on today's episode, we're talking about developing a long-term health strategy. I think households are slow to have that conversation because they don't want to talk about the afterlife or what, what how to prepare moving forward. Um, I know for me personally, um, you know, about 10 years ago, my, uh, my grandmother passed and she didn't have any life insurance, you know? And so just seeing the family having to come together to figure out what we're going to do next was a, a tough, a tough uh, struggle in itself. Um, and so I, I think you know, more families should start actually having those, those conversations to get themselves prepared. Being a leader in our family not only requires us to manage our own care, but also the care of our loved ones. How equipped are you to manage the inner life care for those you're responsible for? Are you prepared to ask the hard questions and make the difficult decisions that are required? In this episode, Dr. William Humphreys from Wellstar Health System is going to guide us through how we as men can craft a health plan that not only includes our longevity, but the inner life concerns for aging parents and loved ones. Stay tuned. The King Culture Podcast starts now. So I want to welcome you to the King Culture Podcast. This is our special series on the plan for longevity. Um, we're talking about men and their uh, health and well-being. And today I am here with Dr. Will Humphreys. And um, we're going to be talking about sort of the end-of-life care and how you should be planning and strategizing for not only your care, but also the care of, of managing the care of, of your loved ones and the people around you. And so welcome, Dr. Humphreys. I'm going to give you a chance to just introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do and how uh, your area of expertise and how'd you get into this and uh, and your profession? Absolutely, so first of all, thank you very much for having me. Um, so I, just a little bit about me, I'm a Georgia native. I was born in Milledgeville, Georgia. Uh, went to high school uh, in Columbia, high school in mm -hmm. Decatur, and then went on to go to college at Morehouse where I majored in biology. Mm -hmm. After that, I went to Duke for med school, and that's when I really started to kind of get interested in uh, kind of how the brain works and how, you know, a lot of what we do and who we are is, is, is tied to our nervous system. And so as a result of that, decided I wanted to be a neurosurgeon when I grew yeah. up, ended up doing my neurosurgery residency at Baylor um, in the Texas Medical Center. And then after that, I did a combined endovascular and open vascular fellowship uh, in Memphis. And so what that does is it gives me the ability to take care of really complex problems that involves the blood vessels in the neck and the brain. And so as a result of that, um, you know, I'm currently part of the Wellstar Health System and uh, part of our comprehensive stroke team. And as a result, you know, we deal a lot with end of life issues just because of the types of uh, uh, medical conditions that we deal with. And so uh, in neurosurgery, um, and particularly in neuroscience in general, uh, end of life issues as it pertains to a lot of different things come up on a day to day basis. Yeah. And so that's um, that kind of gives me that background to be able to have those conversations. Right. So talk a little bit about um, what uh, the profession of, of neurology and sort of what you what are you what are you examining? What are you looking for? And what are the typical type of things that you're 
that you're seeing and issues you're addressing. Yeah, absolutely. So just so there's a dip, little bit of a difference between uh, neurology and neurosurgery. So the way I explain it is neurology is kind of the medical management of uh, diseases that occur within the central nervous system, peripheral nervous system, just, you know, the nervous system in general. Um, where neurosurgery, neurosurgery comes into play is if there is the need for an operative intervention, so an operation that needs to happen. Mm -hmm. For instance, uh, if you need to have a brain tumor removed, that's done by a neurosurgeon. Um, if you're having a stroke, you may be seen by a neurologist, but if you need to have surgery to have that done, then you're, you're, you're being taken care of by a neurointerventionalist um, as, part of that, um, as part of that care uh, process. And so we tend to see a lot of things that involve problems that, that sometimes present themselves in a very, very quote-unquote weird way. For yeah. instance, it may just be, for instance, you're having some numbness or tingling. It may be the case that you're having just a, some mild drooping of your face. It may be the case that sometimes you know you notice that your hand is not necessarily moving the right way and you just, you, 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 you kind of write that off, but then over time it progresses and you find out there's another diagnosis. So that's kind of one bucket. But the other bucket is sometimes all of a sudden something happens immediately and you go from being walking, talking to not moving or not being able to move your right side or having a really bad headache or God forbid, sometimes it's a trauma, car accident. And so we deal with a lot of different types of scenarios, but the final common pathway is at some point it starts to affect our central and peripheral nervous system. Yeah. What, are the, what are the things that uh, people should know and be aware of that can um, help them be able to understand if they're having an issue, a uh, neurologic issue early on, and what should they be doing long-term to make sure that uh, that that's more preventative of, of mm -hmm. major issues. So I think the first thing I always tell people is that prevention is always better than treatment. And so the first way you start to have that self-awareness is by having a really good working relationship with your primary care physician if you're able to have one. And then through that you start to develop this what I call transparency, this willing to actually talk about what's going on. I think one of the things that we sometimes struggle with particularly us men is that there's certain things that we, we will talk about openly, like sports and money sometimes, yeah. but, but other things as it pertains to how we feel on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, we tend to not talk about. Number one, either because we don't want to show that we're vulnerable. Number two, uh, we feel like we're going to be judged. And number three, it might be the case that we're really scared and we don't want to face the reality of what's going on. And so, but I think in the, in the lack of having those conversations, uh, you lose an opportunity to really get used to talking about how you feel. Yeah. And so sometimes having the language to actually express how you feel on a day-to-day -day basis um, is something that can, has to be practiced. Hmm. Um, and so the more you become comfortable about talking to yourself, the more in tune you become with how you feel on a day-to-day -day basis. Hmm. And so that's just generally. I think as it pertains to uh, neurological issues, anytime you have something that persists, numbness, tingling, weakness, if you notice one side of your face, of course, is drooping or not, doesn't look the same. Um, if you notice that you're starting to have uh, issues with more recurrent headaches, uh, neck pain, back pain, these are all things that, you know, they happen on a day-to-day -day basis for some people, but if they persist or they start to get worse and or they don't get better, that's when, that's when you at least reach out to your primary care physician or your neurologist or someone to say, hey, you know, this has been going on for a certain amount of time do you think we should take a better look at it? Yeah. A, and, these, and, and, and those kind of things start when you're, when you're young, when you're Correct. younger, and right. you just kind of brush it off. 
until you get older and it becomes I even more. did it. Really? Yeah. I mean, and I tell people all the time, you know, sometimes what gets us to where we are isn't necessarily what we need to get us to the next level. So, you know, when you're 18 to 25, we all have that arrogance of youth, right? Yeah. We think we are invincible. Nothing really bothers us. We look at other people. We don't understand how they have back pain and neck pain and how that even affects anything. Mm -hmm. But as you start to get older, uh, you start to realize that there are things that happen and you need to have a conversation uh, mm -hmm. about those things. And so, uh, but it starts with developing that habit very early. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think that's really important. Now you had mentioned in in your in your area you're you de you deal with a lot of people that are a lot of families that deal with end of life mm -hmm. decisions. Like what are what are some of the biggest challenges you see, and what are kind of conversations you're consistently having with mm -hmm. with people with, or or their family members? Yes, so I, I I think one of the most unfortunate scenarios that happens when when those things occur is that you realize that you have a patient who is coming up on uh, an end of life issue or, or making plan or is about to transition and you're not actually talking to the patient at that point a lot of yeah. the times in neurosurgery you're talking to their family because they're incapacitated they right. can't they're not they're, they're incapacitated uh, they may be on a ventilator or even if they're not they don't have the mental capacity to advocate for themselves mm -hmm. and so then what happens is it becomes the burden of the family members to try to make a decision the problem is, if you've never had that that conversation with that family member, then it's very hard for you to advocate for what they would want. So the only thing really you can talk about is what you would want for them. Yeah, yeah. But sometimes what you want for them or what your brother want, may want for them or your dad or may want for them may be different. Yeah. And so I think it's that lack of conversation on the front end that makes it very difficult, number one, uh, to deal with end-of-life issues. So I tell people, these are conversations that should be had around the dinner table, not all the time, but sometimes. You should talk about these things very early on. You should make sure that you have a will and a living testament if you need one, an advanced directive, um, you know, how. And you should start thinking about those things as your, yourself. Like, so once you have a family member that transitions and you see what that process is like, start thinking about that for yourself. Say, man, if this were me, what would I want? Mm -hmm. And how would I, what would I want to tell people uh, that, that, that I need or uh, that, that I'd like. And you will find that just because you grew up with people and just because you have the same religion or you have the same politics, that doesn't necessarily mean that everybody feels the same way about death. Yeah. And so that, 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 that is a very difficult conversation for us as physicians when the family members have not had that conversation on the front end. And, and so what I'm hearing is if, if they haven't had the conversation on the front end, then you have different family members sort of competing. You don't know what, right. you know, what interest is going to win out. Um, and then, so you have, you're sort of stuck in the middle as a physician trying mm -hmm. to, trying to navigate the tension. Yeah. And so your, your advice is you should be having those conversations because a lot of our audience is, is younger. Mm -hmm. but they may have parents or grandparents and they're, they're in they're If they're not in position, they will be in position mm -hmm. where they have to make these decisions for them. So your advice is to, to make sure that you're having those conversations early on. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And sometimes it's awkward. Yeah. But I mean, there are ways to do it. I mean, if you're watching a movie and somebody, you know, mom, have you ever thought about like, if you were like in a situation like that, what would you want? Yeah. I don't know what I would want. And some, it's sometimes it's okay to say, I don't know. And sometimes you keep having those conversations until you start to have an understanding of what you would want and, or maybe what your family member would want. And what kind of, you talked a little bit about the documentation, like a mm -hmm. will and. 
what what are some of the other things just the official documentations that you need you, you should be thinking about having yeah for you know aging parents or grandparents that you have in the managed care for so if you're able to afford it i would say definitely a will um a will allows you and just estate planning in general because that allows you to decide how whatever you have will be divided among your family members um, and if there's not a will and there's not a plan for it, sometimes it ends up getting taken to, from you, from the government, and goes to probate. Yeah. And pe people don't, a lot of people don't understand that. So first of all, understanding that. But what that does, once you start developing your will, it obligates you to start having some of those very difficult yeah. conversations yeah. because you're already talking about how you want things to be when you are not here. Yeah. And so that's a good way to start engaging yourself and your family around those topics. And then number two, um, a medical, advanced medical director. That's something that you once you make it. Now, you, what, what exactly is that? So that's a document that, that kind of outlines um, and gives specific details about things that you want to happen or do not want to happen in the event that you're not able to speak for yourself and in the event of certain medical conditions. And so it's a lot of different scenarios. If you're on a ventilator, if you, you, know, if you have a, an issue where you're going to be in a persistent vegetative state, um, if you need a trach and a peg. And so there are a lot of different scenarios, but once again, it's like a menu. It's like a buffet. Um, and so once you start looking at those things, you have to start having a conversation about, well, do I really want that or do I want not? And that gets you into the mindset of thinking about and talking about those things. The advanced medical directive is the thing that advocates for you when you can't, can't speak for yourself, for yourself. Yeah. in the hospital. Yeah. Um, how important is it if just managing long-term care just in general for you to understand your family history and what are the things that you need to know yes um, if you're going to make make better long-term health decisions i always tell people you know you think of your family history the way you would think about your bank account right you wouldn't necessarily show up to the bank and not have some idea of a, about how much money you have in the bank i tell people do the same thing when you start thinking about your family history it's not that you have to write down every single thing that happens but if there's certain things, if you know that there are a lot of people that are dying from heart disease in your family or certain types of cancer um, or strokes um, or diabetes or high blood pressure, those are things that are important because those are things that arm the physician with more information to be able to, to, to understand the probability of you having one of those things. Mm -hmm. And so the better able you are to be able to do those things. And so I tell people, and if you have a bad memory or you get nervous when you go to the doctor, write it down. You can write it down. You can keep it in a little folder. And every time you go to the, the, the doctor, you open up that folder, you say, here are my medications, here's my family history, and you don't have to think about it. Now, there's a difference between what I call family history and family habits. Yeah, so that's about that. I talk to some people and they tell me, well, you know, strokes run in my family, or, you know, cardiovascular disease runs in my family, or, um, you know, diabetes runs in my family. But really, what, what runs in your family is a habit. Is a habit, yeah. You know, you all eat the same type of food. And I'm not saying you, me too. We all eat the same type of food. I'm from the South, fried mm -hmm. foods. We, uh, sometimes we may have the same habits. We live a sedentary lifestyle. Sometimes everybody may smoke. And so what you have inherited is not necessarily a genetic predisposition. What you have inherited is a lifestyle mm -hmm. that predisposes you for developing um, certain things. And so the reason that that's important is some people will throw their hands up in the air and say, well, you know, this just runs in my family. There's nothing yeah. I can do. But you can control your habits. And so sometimes you can control certain disease processes as well. And how do you know the, the difference between what's just something that's genetic and what's something that's just based on your, your habits? 
Well, that's when you have a conversation with your physician yeah. and say, so how much of this do you think, you know, is something that I inherited versus are there ways that I can control this? Mm -hmm. So for every disease process that you have, that's one of the things I always tell patients and I expect for them to ask me, what are the things that I can do to control this process? Or the things that I can do mm -hmm. in my day-to-day -day routine that allow me to take ownership of the disease process versus the disease process dictating uh, dictating my life. Yeah. What do, What do you do if, um, you, you know, one of the things that's prevalent, especially with men, we don't talk about stuff. Mm -hmm. And I know in some of our families, like they're, they're, family history is hard to be able to track because we just don't communicate. Yeah. Grandma never told you what mm -hmm. she what she dealt with, and grand granddad died, and no one knew what mm -hmm. he died from. Yeah. Um, so how do you how do you have an understanding of your family history if there is not a proper communication within your family to be able to develop that understanding? So I think that this is something that particularly for, you know, for I, I have experienced in my own family. And so what I try to do is I try to establish a rapport that's based on trust. And so I ask these questions not to devil, you know, to go into your business, but I'm trying to have a better understanding of how we don't make the same mistakes or fall. So, you know, and so sometimes you have to give people time to, to kind of open up, but you also have to let them know why you're asking those questions. Yeah. And so if, if, and if you can separate uh, the personal stigma that's associated with certain things with just, I'm just trying to understand so that I can make better decisions, particularly if you're a younger person, it may be the case you have to go to two or three people, but you can eventually start you to understand and, and bring it together. But that has, there has to be, particularly among men, We've got to start developing this willingness to be what I call open, vulnerable, and afraid. Yeah. And so because we grow up in a society where sometimes you feel like you're going to be taken advantage of if you show, if you show those things, then that badge of honor is what you carry around with you, and that gets you to a certain point in life. But that very thing might be the thing that keeps you from getting the information that you mm -hmm. need to save your life. So. Yeah, that, that's come up in almost every conversation we've had is, is being able to be vulnerable, especially for men. We're just not willing to always talk about things or even be willing to, you know, ask questions yep. because that may, you know, if I'm asking, you know, dad or granddad about his health history that may uh, implicate some things that are going on with me and I may mm -hmm. not want to reveal that. Yep. And so um, uh, we've heard in all of, all of our conversations just the importance of being honest and being being transparent. Um, uh, I want to go back to just some of the the um, end of health challenges. Like, you know, I, I had um, uh, instances in, in my family mm -hmm. where, you know, I uh, had a grandmother who, you know, managed her affairs well, was doing, doing good. Mm -hmm. She got sick at the end of life and you, we didn't have necessarily she wasn't poor enough to get assistance yep. but you know made too much to be didn't make enough to actually pay for for the care that she needed and mm -hmm. you know you end up having to make some unfortunate financial decisions in order to in order to manage people's care in that situation mm -hmm. um we've been talking a lot about just with with other uh what in other podcasts just about the, the extraordinary cost of healthcare. Mm -hmm. um, just how do you manage that? If you're, you know, you're, you want to protect, you know, the wealth and assets that your family member has built up, but then, you know, they they can't afford the care that they need. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and the only way to do it is for them to actually be poor enough to be able to get public assistance. Mm -hmm. 
I don't know if that's something you've seen before. Well, I think it's, yeah, I think that's something that's very difficult. And I think it just kind of speaks to a bigger issue uh, with healthcare in general in America is like we are one of the richest countries in the world, but yet sometimes we have people that can't afford healthcare. And sometimes these people are not people that were lazy or these are people who actually had working jobs, but still weren't able to buy the healthcare that they needed. And so um, I think it's important to realize that within certain hospital systems, there are resources. Yeah. And so always, you always ask for what those, you have social workers, clinical nurse case managers, uh, sometimes, you know, navigators yeah. uh, that will help you figure out what are your options. Yeah. And so I always tell people that before you start emptying your bank account, just make sure you understand what, what your options are yeah. and that you've exhausted all of those things. Um, and then, you know, it, it becomes a very difficult, uh, it becomes a very difficult thing sometimes for the family. But that's why I think, once again, getting back to the planning. And so if you start planning at 25 or at 30, what your life is going to look like when you're 60 or 70, yeah. right? So we don't think about those things. But, you know, if you start then, then you have started to purchase insurance. Maybe you've, you know, started to um, start a retirement fund and, and, and yeah. those types of things that will help you moving along. Now, I get it. Not everybody has the luxury or the ability to do that. But I think the earlier you start, uh, the easier it is for you to have that option later on. Now, who, who should you be talking to if you're trying to develop mm -hmm. a long-term plan? If you're 25, yeah. 30, who should you be talking to? So I have a lot of friends that will tell you that depends on who you are as a person. So mm -hmm. I think one of the things that's important is what I call self-awareness. I know people that grew up in families, uh, they, that their parents ran businesses, they were business majors in college, they work in corporate America, they know how to run their finances better than any financial advisor ever could, and they have the time and the bandwidth to do it. Um, just because they could do that doesn't mean I do, right? I don't have that ability. Number one, I don't have the skill set like them. Number two, I don't have the time just because I'm a neurosurgeon. And so for me, I have to find someone that I trust to talk about those things with. And what I do, I, you know, you can, but once again, you have to have that willingness to have that conversation. Mm -hmm. So you, you, you talk to people and say, hey, man, what are you doing about your retirement? Oh, you have a financial advisor. What do they do for you? You know, do you like them? Do you not like them? Do you have anybody you can recommend? Mm -hmm. Right. Kind of like a barber. Right. Yeah. 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 And so those things are the things that help you uh, ha having those conversations are the things that help you start to make the plan. But you first have to have the conversation. And so that's a the, the, the you know, the general person you would talk to is a financial advisor. If you think about financing so to some. Yes. Yeah, so I would say financial advisor, you can start with sometimes your accountant. Yeah. Right? If you have an accountant that does your taxes and they're able to see what you do, it may even be a family member. You may have a family member that you trust that does really well mm -hmm. and has done really well. And they don't necessarily need to be 30 years old. They might be five years yeah. older than you. So I, what I tell people is when you're talking about financial security, build a village of individuals that you can talk to and bounce ideas off of. Yeah. Um, just a few more questions. Mm -hmm. One, I want to go back to um, just long-term care in a, for a second. Um, how do you, they're, they're obviously at, when you're, when you're young, you know, you're, you most people are generally healthy, aren't having, you start having major issues, mm -hmm. I guess you get our age. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so like there, there are certain, uh, what, what are the, the, um, uh, besides COVID over the past year, one mm -hmm. of the things that's been on everyone that really triggered. Um, concerns about health when, in everyone's mind was Chadwick Boseman, yep. who who had colon cancer. He was mm -hmm. 42, I think it was. Mm -hmm. um, and what they generally tell you is you get screening for colon cancer at 45. Mm -hmm. um, and 
and so and, and we don't know anything about his his family history or, or, or whatnot but um and so things like colon cancer are very treatable if you catch it early on but if you're not you know if your insurance company is covering screening until mm -hmm. you get 45 then some things might be missed mm -hmm. and so if you could talk a little bit about how number one what should you know it what are where should you go to understand what you should be uh, what type of screenings you should be getting at what age so, um, and how can you sort of navigate that with uh, um, your doctors and insurance companies? So I always, I always tell people, sometimes the best way to get something covered is with appropriate documentation as to why it needs to be covered, yeah. right? And the best way to do that is to equip your physician with the information and the language that they need. Mm -hmm. So the more you understand about your family history, yeah. the more you understand about your problems. For So for instance, um, if you're having regular, you know, rectal bleeding or you're having bloody stools or you're having, you know, you know, abdominal pain, all of these things go into a review of systems that may make it easier for you to get screened. Now, full disclosure, I do neurosurgery. I'm not, yeah, a, yeah, I'm yeah, not a, yeah. a GI doc, but I'm just saying just in general, um, the more information that you can have with your primary care physician, the more then that they can start to pick out patterns that you may not see. Mm. So you have to have that regular, uh, continual communication with them. Uh, such that even if you're younger, there may be things that, that get picked up. Yeah. Um, and then um, once you, you know, once you start to understand that, if there's a particular disease process that you're concerned about, you know, you can go on the internet. You can always go to things like the World Health Organization. You can go to the CDC website. There are a lot of places where you can get reputable information about different disease processes. And that's not to say that you're going to become a Google doctor, no, right? No. But you're able to have a more intelligent and informed conversation of, with your physician when you go back, yeah. right? And so then that's how you start that dialogue such that then you have the language to kind of equip that physician with, with the ability to pick up things that otherwise may have been missed. Yeah, so what I'm hearing is you need to be able to be equipped, understand um, your family history, the, the kind of the symptoms of the disease. So when you're talking to the doctor, give the, the proper language and communicate um, with him, uh, him or her, so they can you know, they can make treatment recommendations or screening recommendations. Right. And so that and that may or may not change the screening recommendations for your particular for your particular case. Yeah. Um, so the last question, like if you had any advice um, that you're giving um, a, a young a young man um, to manage his his long term health. Mm -hmm. um, and to make sure specifically that when you get to end of life care for either himself or the people that he cares from, he cares for, that he can be better better prepared. What, yeah. what would you say? I would say number one, um, be mindful of your diet, right? And so when I think about diet, it's not just what you eat. Your diet is everything you consume that you take in. And this is particularly young for true for people when we're young, right? Yeah. It's who you're around. It's what type of music you listen to. It's, of course, what you eat, whether or not you smoke, what type of environments you're in, you know, what type of energy you let into your space. Because what that does is that develops, that, that to some degree starts to impact who you become as a person. That affects your mental health. It can affect your physiologic health. And it becomes, it, it also affects, you know, just your overall psyche. And so if you want to have ownership of where you are earlier on and uh, later on in life, you have to be mindful of what you're taking into your body. Yeah. We become a product of what we consume and what we allow to consume our mind. Yeah. Um, number two, 
uh, understand that it is important to have a village. Yeah. And that village sometimes consists of your family, sometimes it consists of friends, sometimes it consists of mentors, but surround yourself with people that are either where you want to be or going in the direction that you want to go in. Um, and that's really important because I can tell you for a fact, some of the best career advice I've gotten, some of the best financial advice I've gotten, healthcare advice I've gotten, has actually been from people that have been around me, right, that have given me that advice that may not have, if I had not been comfortable talking to them, I, I would have lost out, right? Yeah. And that's classmates in college. That's, you know, it, it, the, the number of times I've learned from my own peers as endless. So there has to be a willingness and openness, a willingness to be open and, and have a and, and have a conversation about those things. And then lastly, um, you know, practice does not make perfect, practice makes permanent. Yeah. What you do every day will eventually become who you are. So it's okay to say that you're, you feel a certain way or you think a certain way, but if you're not doing the things that are required to be that individual, then that um, that, that may not come to fruition for yeah. you. So develop good habits, hygiene, mm. right? Develop good habits in terms of exercising, not, not living a sedentary lifestyle. Develop good habits in terms of not, you know, doing things like smoking, cocaine, amphetamines. Those those day-to-day -day things eventually will become who you are. Yeah. And so be mindful of those. It's yeah. good advice. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks. All right. Thanks for listening to this edition of the King Culture Podcast. For more information on a plan for longevity, visit us online at kingculture.org and fill out your personal health inventory. Follow us on social media at King Culture Inc. And don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe. 